Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. And uh, so uh, several weeks back, we started a new series uh, that we had the goal of going through the book of Revelation uh, word by word and verse by verse. And we want to continue with that tonight as we look into Revelation chapter 1. I'm so encouraged that there is um, an interest in the Word of God and in this revelation that God has given to us. And uh, the book of Revelation is a unique book in all the Bible. Uh, because it is different than all the rest. It is different uh, in style, it is different in scope, and in uh, whereas all of the other books either deal in uh, present events that are happening or past events, uh, the book of Revelation is mostly focused on things that are to come, future events and prophecy. And so tonight, uh, as we looked at part one, it was the need for revelation. I don't know about you, but uh, I need revelation in my life. I need revelation uh, from God. It is not enough for us to learn things from other people. Uh, you and I, if we are going to live for God somewhere along the way, you're going to have to hear from God. Amen. And so uh, we learned in the last uh, session that this is a book primarily written by Jesus. And also a book that is primarily written about Jesus. And so in a, in a very uh, interesting sense, this is a book that is an autobiography. Uh, an autobiography being a book written about one's self. The, it was the Apostle John, obviously, who put pen to paper. Uh, but it, this is a revelation of Jesus. And now we're, tonight as we look into this scripture in chapter 1 verse 4, we're going to get a little bit more introduction before we get into uh, the major message of the book. And so this is a message I've titled Authors and Titles. Let's read together Revelation 1 verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. In verse 8, 
Jesus begins to speak. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we come by the Spirit of God. We ask you once again to help us and to enlighten your word, God, in our minds. I'm praying, Lord, that the Spirit of God would lead us and, uh, and would uh, help us tonight. Lord, that you would, you would gain glory and greater glory, Lord, from this Scripture as we begin to understand it. I pray that you'd help us and your grace would be evident in this place tonight. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. God's people would say, Amen. Whenever you read a book or a letter... Or whenever you hear a message, it is critical for you to understand who is the author. If you pick up a random uh, book or newspaper uh, or any, any source of information, it is very hard to decipher unless you know who is the one writing. And what I want to do for a few moments this evening is to examine the author, the source of this material that we are reading tonight. The first word that we read in, uh, in verse 4 is a single word which identifies the, the human being that was used as God's mouthpiece to put pen to paper, and his name, of course, is John. Now, John is a very humble guy. Even when you read his gospel, he uh, hardly ever mentions his own name. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, without saying, I did this or I did that, he says, he's speaking in the third person. Uh, he's speaking anonymously and, uh, he's doing that because he wants to keep the attention and the focus on Jesus. By the way, that's a really good rule of thumb for your life is to keep the attention and the focus on Jesus. But in order to give understanding of where this revelation came from he has to at least identify himself in some way and he does that with a single word john and with very few other details uh he he uh he does give a little bit of his story uh later on in the chapter but uh i love how he gives himself just this one word introduction i believe it is worthy of our time and our attention tonight to know some of the history of the apostle john and his place in the early church. He was a, such a central figure to the story of Jesus and the story of the church as it began that uh, we often uh, don't remember. So often when we come to church, we hear messages from the epistles. We hear about the Apostle Paul a lot. We hear about Jesus a lot. Um, but uh, maybe, maybe in third place or fourth place, we might hear the Apostle Paul. John, but I want to give you just a little bit of background to so that you can know his his story and appreciate where he is coming from. A couple of things to remember about this author, the Apostle John, that he was one of the very first disciples that Jesus called. We find his story in Mark chapter one, verse 16. As he, Jesus, was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Those are the first two disciples of Jesus. Very next verse, verse 19. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, son of Zebedee, 
and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. John, we know, was a follower of uh, John the Baptist. He was a disciple of John the Baptist before he was a disciple of Jesus. And so we see that, first of all, John is, is on the cutting edge. He is following the right people at the right time. And when the time came to follow Jesus, he did not hesitate. He left his nets and began to follow Jesus. We also see about the Apostle John that there, that there was an inner circle of groups of disciples who saw Jesus in a capacity that none of the others did. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, it says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And we know at the top of this mountain, uh, they witnessed something that, uh, that, that uh, very few people have gotten to see on this earth, and that is Jesus in all of his glory. They saw Jesus transfigured. They saw him in his heavenly form rather than just his earthly form. No wonder John followed Jesus all of the days of his life if he had that image of who Jesus really was, Peter, James, and John. He was present at all the scenes which he describes in his gospel. He is the writer, the author of the fourth gospel account. When you are reading the book of John, the, the, um, the gospel of John, you are reading his personal uh, recollection of how things happen. Now, uh, whenever I uh, give someone a Bible or if someone is unfamiliar with the Bible, I usually direct them to read the book of John first. And there's a reason I do that because the book of John focuses in on the spiritual aspects, the miracles of Jesus. He focuses in on the miracles and the interactions that Jesus has with individual people. John was there and he was able to recollect and to uh, put down on paper the incredible details of what took place. He was the only disciple that was chosen to take care of the mother of Jesus, Mary. Uh, From the cross, Jesus cried out to his disciple John, Behold your mother. And to his mother Mary, he said, Behold your son. And basically he's asking his disciple to please make sure that the needs of his mother would be cared for while she still lived on the earth. He didn't ask Peter to do that. He didn't ask James to do that. He didn't even ask his own brother to do that. He asked John to do that. Now, what does that tell you about the relationship that John had with Jesus? He was the only disciple that was close enough to Jesus to literally be leaning on him at the Last Supper. In John 13, verse 23, there leaning on Jesus was one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved. And, uh, and so uh, there was a closeness between them, a bond that could not be broken. No matter how you look at it, Jesus, uh, John is the only disciple that Jesus was this close to. Now, if you follow his story into the book of Acts, we find him popping up in some major places. A student of the Bible will find him, first of all, uh, in early on in chapter 3. He is with Peter. Remember, John and Peter going into the temple. And there's a man sitting at the gate called Beautiful. 
and uh, and Peter ministers to him, heals him in Jesus' name. He stands up and walks, but guess who's there with him? John was there. John was at the pivotal scene when... Um, when uh, this man was healed and they go before the Sanhedrin and they go before the, the religious leaders and, and he is the one, he is there to, uh, to lay hold and to give a witness of all that has happened. In chapter 8, he goes with Peter on the mission to Samaria. He is with Peter and with James in Galatians chapter 2. He is described by Paul as one of the pillar apostles. And so I'm saying all of this to tell you how central John is to the entire New Testament. Yes, we focus, obviously, on the testimony of Jesus. Everything is focused on Jesus. But John was perhaps one of the closest followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In history, if we look back uh, uh, at events that happened uh, after the book of Acts and uh, before uh, the book of Revelation was written. Um, we, we know that there was a, an emperor. I spoke about this in, in the first part of this series. There was an emperor of Rome called Domitian. He took the throne in the year 81 AD and began immediately to persecute the Jews and Christians as well. And so Domitian uh, began to do horrible things against all Christians. And, uh, and he found out that it was in the city of Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, where uh, the Apostle John had been teaching and leading a group of Christians, where he had been ministering to them and leading them, when the Emperor Domitian heard about this, he began to come against the Apostle John. He arrested him and brought him into a captivity. They say that the Emperor Domitian forced him to drink poison, intending to kill him. But... Uh, God had other plans for the Apostle John. So he drank poison and survived. So they said that it didn't even hurt him. Also, uh, Domitian later on was attempting to kill the Apostle John. Normally, if you want to kill somebody, you can uh, put them in a pot of boiling oil, and that pretty much takes care of them. The Emperor Domitian tried to do this two times to the Apostle John. But he came out alive. Not only alive, but they say that he was not even barely injured. And so, since Domitian could not kill him, this is why he ended up on the island of Patmos. This is just off the coast of Turkey, and this is like a prison colony at the time. They said, well, I guess we can't kill him. I guess we better put him in a place where he's not going to do anything. And it was there that he began to put pen to paper and wrote this incredible book of Revelation. And so I would just want to take a pause here, because from, these, uh, from this great source, the Apostle John, we can learn something. I want to encourage you. If God has something for you to do, he is going to preserve you. You talk about preservation. God alone knew when his time was, was about to come. And no matter poison, no matter uh, being boiled in oil, no matter the entire Roman Empire and the emperor himself coming against the Apostle John, God protected him. And I want to tell you tonight, God can protect you also. I also want to say about John, before we move on tonight, 
that John was the only one of all the apostles that we know of who made it and advanced into older age. He's the only one. Uh, We know that he was probably uh, no more than 20 years old at the time that Jesus died. He was a young man, perhaps even a teenager, when he was a disciple. And, uh, And so that was around the year 30 A.D. when Jesus died. Now, scholars believe that this book of Revelation was written in probably 80 or 85 A.D., close to 90. So you do the math. That's 60 plus years. He's probably... 70 to 80 years old as he's writing this this book so he's the only uh apostle who gains that that uh, age and here's what i want to say you can have a full life for jesus just because you start getting a little older doesn't mean you have to take a break from serving god you know i i was saved when i was 16 years old and i was full of energy sometimes i wish i had some of that energy And even though I don't have that much energy as I used to, what I can say is I still want to serve God with just as much strength. I look at Pastor Mitchell. You know, Pastor Mitchell is 85, I think. He's going to turn 85 this year. Can I tell you, he is still going around the world on a weekly basis to preach the gospel. Almost every day. Five out of seven days, he's preaching. What a great example that is for us. When you start getting tired, you just think about Pastor Mitchell on an airplane flying to Timbuktu somewhere to go preach the gospel and gets home late and leaves early the next day. And he preaches on Sunday morning in Prescott, Arizona. You just think about that for a few moments when you think, oh, I'm so tired. Oh, I can't make it. You just think about Pastor Campbell, who uh, has two bum knees from playing too much basketball in his younger years. And still preaches twice on Sunday and a Sunday school and a men's discipleship. And he's 75, 76 years old. Okay, I'm not saying this to shame you, but look, if you're 30 years old and you feel tired, hey, you don't have an excuse, man. I got my 95-year-old grandmother sitting here in the second row. Don't tell me how tired you are. Don't tell me how sick you are. If 95-year-old Grand Mary can be here, you can be here and have a good attitude in Jesus' name. If the Apostle John can have a revelation from God and be used by God in his old age, then don't, don't put this off. You can live for God today. Somebody say amen. I was encouraged when I started thinking about John. Now, let's look at some of this revelation tonight. So we see, first of all, the author, the one who put pen to paper is John. And we see it's being written to seven churches which are in Asia. We're going to learn more about these seven churches in the next message. But the message is this, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. I'm going to... Talk about Jesus in just a moment. But first I want to mention this, uh, these words from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So here we are on the fourth verse of this, uh, this book, and we already run into a mystery. <laughs> who are the seven spirits? In my Bible, with a capital S. 
And I begin to do a little research and try to figure this out. Who are this? Is this seven separate spirits? Is this seven different people? Is it the spirit of God? What are we talking about? And so there are three main uh, translations of what that means. Seven spirits. First of all, it, uh, this, the seven spirits are mentioned only in Revelation, but in three other places. Revelation 3, verse 1. Uh, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Revelation 4, verse 5. Again, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Revelation 5, verse 6. And he says, having... Uh, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so in four verses, we have the seven spirits of God, and they are not given a proper definition in the scripture. And so we, ha- we are left to interpret. And that's the fun. This is the fun part of studying the Bible. What can we interpret? So there are three main ideas. The first one is that when the Bible says seven spirits, you first of all have to understand that the number seven is very important in the Bible. Seven is a symbolic of completion or perfection. The world was created in how many days? Wrong. It was six days. I got you, didn't I? On the seventh day, God rested. You know what that was? On the seventh day, the Sabbath day, God says, this place is awesome. It was a special day set aside to show completion and perfection. He said, look at what I've done. And by the way, if God rested on the seventh day, don't tell me you got to go to work. I'll just let that sink in for a minute. So the, the number seven has the idea of perfection or completion in the Bible. And so some people look at this and say seven spirits. Okay, maybe this just means the Holy Spirit active in seven places. Not seven separate spirits, but one spirit at work in seven places. The, the uh, scripture has, uh, goes on to describe seven churches. And so maybe we're, we're talking about the spirit at work in seven of those churches. Some have said that perhaps seven spirits refers to seven angelic beings, like angels. Perhaps the seraphim or the cherubim, which would better describe the other scriptures that are in the book of Revelation. There's another interesting uh, uh, interpretation that comes out of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, there's an interesting verse that kind of uh, uh, comes together with seven spirits. Listen to what it says, Isaiah 11, verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Speaking about Jesus... The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so perhaps together with this scripture from Isaiah, the seven spirits could include the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. That's an interesting idea. But uh, I think the most, the one that makes the most sense is probably the first one. It's simply that when we talk about the seven spirits, it is simply the spirit at work 
in the seven churches of Revelation. And so here we have, again, we're looking at the authors of this book. We've got the Apostle John. We've got the seven spirits, which is the Spirit of God. And we also have, obviously, which we talked about in our last uh, message, is Jesus. This is a book primarily from Jesus and primarily about Jesus. Look again at verse 5. And from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory, dominion, forever and ever. Amen. We get some... some uh, some idea of who Jesus is. And the book of Revelation is great as a source of poetic descriptions of Jesus Christ. It is from the book of Revelation that many of our modern worship songs gain their uh, lyrics. It is from this scripture that we're going to read in a moment that, uh, that many songs have put uh, to melody and are, we are able to bring greater praise to God through them. But we see some titles that Jesus gains, even in this scripture, that he is a faithful witness, that he is firstborn from the dead. That means the same resurrection that Jesus Christ experienced uh, three days after his death. If he is the firstborn, then that means that there's going to be more born. That resurrection is not limited to Jesus, but he was a prototype. He is a ruler over kings. We could say the king of kings, the Lord of lords. This is a reminder of who we're serving, not just meek and mild, gentle Jesus, not just the lamb laid down, but he's also the Lord of all creation. But then it says it's him who loved us, a great king who cares even about little people like us enough to wash us from our sins with his own blood. He goes on to call him the one who makes us kings and priests. I want you to hear that tonight. The one that we serve is a God who makes us into royalty. Kings and priests to God. And he is worthy of glory for all time. John begins then to tell us about his second coming. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with clouds. Uh, just the same way the angel declared, the same way that you saw him ascend into heaven one day, he'll be coming back down from the clouds in the same manner. And we all look forward to that day, which could be today. Behold, he is coming with clouds. And when he does, every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. You say, how is that possible? The people who pierced him are long dead. Those Roman soldiers and those, uh, those Pharisees and Sadducees, they've been dead for 2,000 years. How are they going to see it? Well, when Jesus comes back, there will be a resurrection of all people, both the righteous and the unrighteous. A physical resurrection so that all will see the coming of the Lord. More on that in Revelation chapter 19. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. By the way, 
When you say the word amen, do you realize what you are saying? When you say in Jesus' name, amen, what you are saying is, let it be. Let it be. Let it be. Lord, let everything that we've prayed for, let it come to pass. And so when the word amen is added to the end, I want you to think that he is adding his amen to the chorus. Lord, please bring it to pass. Now I love right here in verse 8, Revelation chapter 1, all of this description, all of this introduction, all of these titles that have been given to Jesus, and all of a sudden in my Bible, I've got, you know, where Jesus starts speaking and the ink turns to red. You got that in your Bible? Well, all of a sudden in, uh, in verse 8, it says, it, 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 it breaks out. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's almost like uh, we have interrupted your regularly scheduled programming to bring you this special message from the Lord Jesus. It's almost like John is trying to do his best to describe what's happening and breaking through the noise, Jesus himself begins to speak. And this is what he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, says the Lord. Now, to understand what he is saying, you have to understand what Alpha and Omega means. These are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. It's almost like Jesus was saying, if he used the English version of this, he's saying, I am the A and I am the Z. And I am everything in between. You can't even talk without me. You can't read. You can't think. Because everything that we think, guess what? It's in words. And if you don't have letters, you can't have words. And you don't have words, you can't have sentences. And if you can't have sentences, you can't have paragraphs. And if you can't have paragraphs, you can't have books. And some of you said, amen, I don't want any books. But Jesus is saying that I am the beginning and the end. I am the first, I am the last, I am the A, and I am the Z, and I am everything in between. The question is... That is reality, but the question is, is that how you really treat it? Sometimes we are guilty of keeping Jesus off into this little corner of our lives, right? Jesus, you can be the A, but I'd like to have the B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. You can be the A and the F and the Z and the P, but I'd like to hang on to the rest. Don't we do that with Jesus sometimes? We keep him in a little compartment. And we say, oh, I, I'm, I'm smart enough to make these decisions, Jesus. But do you remember who you are serving tonight? You are serving the one who created all things. We sang tonight, there is no rock. There is no God like our God. He goes on to say, I am the Lord who is, who was, and who is to come the Almighty. This is a beautiful way to describe a Christian doctrine called the eternality of God. It means that He alone is eternal. Let me ask you, do you know anything or anyone who has always existed besides God? You sure don't. 
you know that you are not eternal. There was a there was a production date on you. And there is an expiration date on you. You are not eternal. Angels are not eternal, even though they might live on forever. They certainly had a date of production. Demons are nothing more than fallen angels, so they are not eternal. Even Satan, the enemy of our soul, as smart and as powerful as he might be, he is not eternal. The universe that we live in, the time-space continuum in which we exist is not eternal. Even the atheists tell us there was a starting point. There was some kind of big bang that happened, and the universe continues to expand. So if you roll that backwards, roll the tape backwards, if something is expanding, that means it used to be smaller. For a long time, the scientific world said that uh, the, the created world has to somehow has to be eternal because when they discovered that that the world was or the universe was actually expanding, then this changed everything. The Hubble telescope and Einstein's theory of relativity, everything changed in the early 20th century. And now even the scientists proclaim the truth of the word of God that there was a beginning. There was a beginning. The, the universe is not eternal. Only God is eternal and this is what he says about himself i am the one who is and who was and who is to come psalm 90 echoes this truth verse 2 for before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting you are god can i tell you that's why you can trust him. <laughs> so I don't know if I can trust God. I don't know if I can uh, do the things that he asked me to do. I'm not sure if, uh, if, if I can really do those things that God told me to do. Because if I do, you know, God, uh, it's kind of risky. This is the God who existed before anything. And who will exist for eternity beyond. You can trust him. How about Isaiah who says in chapter 57, verse 15, thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of contrite ones. Let me speak to the person tonight before we close to the person who's in the midst of a storm. You know, we go through storms in life, don't we? We go through trials. We go through tribulations. I'm sure as the Apostle John was writing the words of Jesus here, I'm sure he might have been thinking about his own trials. I'm sure he might have been thinking about how he was separated from his own family on a colony, a prison colony called Patmos. I'm sure he was thinking about how uh, he wanted to go home and eat some of his wife's cook cooking and to be with his children and perhaps grandchildren. I'm sure he wanted to go to Ephesus, his home city, where his church that he had planted, and be part of the fellowship and the congregation there. I'm sure he was suffering, no doubt, as a prisoner, being in want and in need. And here he is writing about the Eternal One, the One who was and who is and who is to come. 
And I want to remind you tonight, when you're going through trouble, to turn to the only one who is eternal. See, the closest thing that we can get to in this life that doesn't change is the rock, right? (laughs) That's why we sing that song, there is no rock, there is no God, and even rocks are changing. If you watched a rock long enough, it would break down piece by piece. Maybe you've seen those uh, videos of the rocks in the middle of the desert, and they have a trail behind them. Like, where? how did that happen? Giant rock moving through the desert. The winds and the shifting sands and everything. But even the rock that we sing about is not eternal, but God is tonight. These are wonderful things for you and I to remember when we are going through the storms of life. This book of Revelation is a book from Jesus about Jesus. And I want to encourage you as we continue. And we're going to get into some really powerful messages that Jesus speaks directly to his church. But for tonight, I want to remind you of the eternal truth that God is there. And even though he is eternal, he is big, he's awesome, he's powerful, but he still cares for you. That Jesus Christ still loves you enough to save you by his blood. Isn't that an incredible truth tonight? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a few moments as we bring this service to close tonight. Jesus gives us a revelation of himself in order that we might not fear. In our next message, Jesus speaks... We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vvph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website, vvph.org, and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people.